Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. My beloved and enlightened junto, our historical journey through season one has come to its climax. These past few months have truly flown by, but rest assured... There are much bigger things brewing on the horizon, and you can expect more historical happenings and conversational curiosities when we pick up with Season 2 at the beginning of September. During our brief recess, while I catch my breath, our associate and co-creator of the show, Mr. Austin, will be busy at work, creating content for the members of our Patreon, hosting his monthly coffeehouse chats, and releasing making-of, behind-the-scenes episodes made especially for the members of our Patreon. Speaking of coffeehouse chats, we'll be hosting our next one this Friday at 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. We've created a special tier... Uh, the Penny Philosopher, for those who wish to become involved in our coffeehouse chats. Starting at just $10 a month, you can receive an invitation to these coffeehouse chats and be a part of a growing community fixed on history and the stories told on Let's Be Frank. As always, nothing is expected. I'm wealthy enough for your company. Uh, That's all I'll say about that. I'm unwilling to make myself disagreeable to my fellow citizens by too frequently soliciting their contributions. That's a real quote from yours truly, so you know it's true. But one last thing upon the Patreon. We do wish to offer our deepest gratitude and benedictions to Mr. Christopher Coakling and company for joining the Friends of Franklin tier of our Patreon. Welcome to the Junto, Christopher. We're lucky to have you. Now to today's business. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Benjamin Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is the fourth and final installment of Chasing Independence, the series devoted to the philosophy that built the American Declaration of Independence. How fitting that we should be finishing up on the 4th of July. It's almost like I did it on purpose, which of course I did. Now first to recap. So far, we've explored government by consent of the governed and the social contract with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. We've explored the law of nations with Immer de Vattel and the separation of powers with the Baron de Montesquieu. Today, we'll build upon all of that with the key that unlocks the door to natural liberty and speak of the nature of rights with the one and the only John Locke. But first, the setting. 
When we last left the story, Mr. Thomas Jefferson was busy at work writing the American Declaration of Independence. He had submitted his early drafts to myself, Mr. Adams, and the Committee of Five was busy putting forward their ideas to craft a national sentiment for the American people to extend to the larger world. While the Declaration of Independence was being put forward to Committee of the Whole, the Lee Resolution was introduced on the 1st of July to the Second Continental Congress. Debates took place until finally, 13 colonies were called to come together and with one voice decide the fate of independence. In the stifling heat of summer, 12 states would vote in the affirmative for independence with one abstention, the colony of New York, who occupied by the British Lion, could not receive instructions from their delegates. The fateful vote for independence would take place on the 2nd of July. America found itself independent. John Adams would have this to say about the 2nd of July. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward and forevermore. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means, and that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even although we should rue it, which I trust in God we shall not. Now regardless of what day we celebrate, whether it's the 2nd of July or indeed the 4th when the Declaration was adopted, Mr. Adams was correct. The 4th of July brings with it not only a celebration of all that we are as a nation, but also aspirations at all we wish to be. The Declaration would be voted upon two days later, for the most part intact, save for an integral paragraph on the subject of slavery, of it being thrust upon us by the British Empire, and a censoring of the institution. One of the fateful compromises in pursuit of our union was the striking out of that clause, and with it one of the earliest opportunities to speak out against an institution which, even in 1776, was a recognized contradiction to all that we were aspiring for. The Declaration of Independence exists in three parts. The first, its preamble, establishing what a government should be. Now, this is the part I suspect a great majority of our countrymen will know. Now, the second part, the grievances against the British Empire, justifying the separation of the contract. And the third part, the establishing of a new contract. In the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, we boldly assert 
that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are, I suspect you know it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so where does the thought of these inalienable rights come from? Where does the subject of natural liberty begin? Just where did Mr. Thomas Jefferson find inspiration of that famous clause? And before we get to it, let's travel back a hundred years or so into the past to another revolution that greatly inspired the American Revolution. I'm speaking, of course, of the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Now, the Glorious Revolution was sparked by a series of events that led to a crisis in England. By 1688, England was still healing from the wounds of a bloody civil war. The king, James II of the line of Stuart, was a Catholic king amongst a Protestant nation. Now, through his various policies, the Protestant majority grew entirely dissatisfied with the reign of their Catholic king. They labeled him a tyrant, and through a series of conspiracies, petitioning, convinced the husband of his daughter Mary, King William, to take the throne of England. William landed in England with an army in November 1688, and James II fled to France. William and Mary were then proclaimed joint monarchs of England. It was not William's ascension that made this revolution glorious in the eyes of its people. It's that it was a revolution without a drop of blood spilled. And what followed thereafter was what made that revolution truly glorious. One of the first things done after William took the throne was a Bill of Rights was put forward that established the principle of the rule of law and greatly increased the power of the legislature in this new government. What the Glorious Revolution also did was it solidified forever that kings do not rule by divine right, that a people, when they are dissatisfied with their government, may abolish that government and create a system that reflects them better. Now, in the midst of all of that, a writer put pen to paper to defend the glorious revolution, a propagandist who, in his own time, did not escape controversy and censor, but whose writings even now to this day impact and influence the destiny of nations and the science of politics. I'm speaking, of course, of John Locke. John Locke was born on August 29th, 1632, in Rington, Somerset, England, he was the eldest son of John Locke Sr., a lawyer and small landowner, and a staunch supporter of the parliamentarian cause during the English Civil War. Locke received his early education at the Westminster School in London, where he excelled in classics and rhetoric. In 1652, he entered the University of Oxford, where he studied medicine, logic, and philosophy. It was during his time at Oxford that Locke became interested in the philosophical ideas of René Descartes and Robert Boyle. After completing his studies at Oxford, Locke pursued a career in medicine and became a physician. It was at this time that he changed his name to John Dock. Uh, that's just a joke, dear listener. Don't write that down. 
He worked as an assistant to Thomas Sittingham, a prominent physician at the time, and gained valuable experience in treating patients and conducting medical research. However, it was Locke's interest in philosophy that eventually took center stage in his life. In the late 1660s, he became acquainted with a group of intellectuals known as the Cambridge Platonists, who greatly influenced his thinking. Locke also formed a close friendship with the philosopher and scientist Robert Boyle, who encouraged him to pursue his philosophical ideas. In 1683, Locke's life took a dramatic turn when he became involved in a plot to assassinate King Charles II. The plot, known as the Rye House Plot, aimed to overthrow the king and establish a more democratic government. However, the plot was discovered, and Locke was forced to flee to the Netherlands to avoid arrest and execution. During his exile in the Netherlands, Locke continued to develop his philosophical ideas. He wrote some of his more influential works, including an essay concerning human understanding. It was in this essay that Locke explored the idea of tabula rasa, the blank slate, arguing that we are all born as blank canvases, devoid of innate ideas, a canvas that over time is painted with our ideas, our scruples, our mores, and our thoughts. After the glorious revolution of 1688, Locke returned to England and became an influential figure in politics and intellectual circles. It was here that he wrote the treatises on government that we'll discuss today. It was in Locke's second treatise on government that he begins to go into detail on the idea of natural liberty. Now, dear listener, we have already explored the state of nature, so we need not revisit that. But what of the natural liberties and freedoms one possesses in this state of nature? That we've not yet explored. Now, John Locke begins to understand political power and derive it from its original. We must consider what state all men are naturally in and that is a state of perfect freedom, to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature, without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. So in this state of nature, deprived entirely from government, from law, from order, and from the various social constraints that come from society, what is man in possession of? John Locke enumerates three natural rights. Those rights, of course, are life, liberty, and property. Now, dear listener, it's important to know you are not owed these rights by society, nor are you guaranteed them. You simply have them by the merit of creation. Life, the blood in your veins, your breath, liberty, your ability to choose and discern for yourself, and last, property those things you acquire for the purpose of your own survival. Now, when law speaks of the law of nature, and that law is simply thus, to exist and respect the rights of your fellow man, to not violate the rights of any of those other creatures born to an equal state of freedom. Locke, of course, explains that those laws of nature, having no guarantee to them, are very quickly violated. So from there, in that state of nature, with perfect freedom, you're in possession of those rights, but you have no guarantee of them. You have no safety. So this is where the beginnings of political society come into play. 
that social contract that we spoke of with Jean-Jacques Rousseau in part one of Chasing Independence. The following passage comes from chapter eight of the beginnings of political society. Men being, as has been said, by nature, all free, equal, and independent, no one can be put out of this estate and subjected to the political power of another without his own consent. The only way whereby any one divests himself of his natural liberty and puts on the bonds of civil society is by agreeing with other men to join and unite into a community for their comfortable, safe, and peaceable living one amongst the other. In a secure enjoyment of their properties, and a greater security against any that are not of it. This any number of men may do, because it injures not the freedom of the rest. They are left as they were in the liberty of the state of nature. When any number of men have so consented to make one community or government, they are thereby presently incorporated and make one body politic, wherein the majority have a right to act and conclude the rest. And so, civil society no matter what form it exists in, exists to protect these three natural rights from life, liberty, and property, the natural God-given rights, mankind gets civic rights, rights agreed upon and crafted by society that can be regulated by society to better protect the three natural rights. Some examples of civic rights might be the right to a trial by a jury of your peers, the right to keep and bear arms, the sentiment that all government comes from consent of the governed. All of these are civic rights, rights that are malleable, can be regulated always for the protection of those three rights. From this commingling of society and liberty, John Locke puts forward the sentiment of the commonwealth. You might hear this language in certain states, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts all being commonwealths. A commonwealth comes from the word the common wheel, or the good of all. A commonwealth can exist in any form of government, and simply means a people devoted for the betterment of everyone within that society and the protection of that liberty. So if you find yourself, dear listener, embroiled in a modern debate of what your rights or what your privileges are, try and find the root of all of those civic liberties. Where is the natural right that is being protected? And if you do that, modern debates on polarized subjects might just become a little bit more simple, might just become a little bit more sensible. We might find a degree of common ground. We might find a degree of common wealth. And wouldn't that be nice, dear listener? Like all the philosophers that we've covered to this point, John Locke would never live to see an independent America, would never live to see the realization of a bold experiment coming from his work. And in that, my dear friends, I think we can find the lesson for today's installment. All of us, go about our days in society pursuing our own happiness, trying to make the world a better place for ourselves, for our family, for our nations. But rarely do we take the time to stop and think of how the things we do on a daily basis 
may impact a world that we will never see. And so, dear listener, on this 4th of July, and every 4th of July after, make the world better. Do things that tomorrow can benefit from that you yourself will never see. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.